Luke chapter 19 is where we're at. You should be there by now. I'm going to jump right into it because we're, going to, we're just going to cover 10 verses, but there's a lot to pull out of these verses, so uh, we're going to spend some time here. Um, big idea of our text is what happens when you see Jesus. What happens in your life, how, how transformative it is when a person genuinely sees Jesus. And we've been looking uh, last week and again now this week at several examples of people who were blind to Jesus. We saw last week the apostles blinded by their expectations. We saw the, a beggar who was blinded by his affliction, literal blindness, um, <clears throat> and the Lord restoring his sight. Today, uh, you can write it down. Here's our big idea. We're going to look at a tax collector blinded by his situation. We're going to look at a familiar story, Zacchaeus, uh, Luke chapter 19, beginning of verse 1. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he uh, was rich. We're going to dig into that a little bit. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but he could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature, polite biblical way of saying he was a short little guy. And so he ran ahead, verse 4, and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that Way. How many of you, Sunday school, this school, this lesson, you're like, yes, uh, we little Zacchaeus, what a wee little man was he, right? Uh, and, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he saw him. And he said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And so he made haste uh, and he came down uh, and received him joyfully, but when they saw it, speaking of the religious leaders, um, holier-than-thou religious leaders, when they saw it, they all complained, saying he, speaking of Jesus, Jesus has gone to be a guest with a man who's, who's a sinner. And then Zacchaeus stood, and he said to the Lord, look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So here we have this familiar story of Zacchaeus. And taken together with the events that have preceded this, the things that we looked at last week, serves as yet another example of someone who desperately needs to see Jesus. Now, simply put, Zacchaeus was blinded by his situation. To begin with, for years, Zacchaeus was a man who was blinded by ambition, he was blinded by greed, he was blinded by riches. And it's ironic, Zacchaeus, his name actually means pure one, but Zacchaeus was anything but pure. Uh, it was really ironic that you would say, there's a pure one. Yes, he's pure evil, is, is what you might say. Um, he, he was far from pure. He wasn't just a tax collector. He was the chief tax collector. Now, we, going through Luke, we've had occasion to look at tax collectors and, and just get the vibe of who they are and what they were all about. And really, the short version is, is that tax collectors, uh, typically uh, Israelis, you know, uh, Jews that worked for the occupying government, Rome. And the, the job of the tax collector was to exact from you every last penny 
that you owed to Rome, which was a rub in and of itself because the, the Jews all hated and reviled Rome. They couldn't stand the fact that they had conquered them and, and occupied their city and all. And so it was adding insult to injury that they then had to give them this money so that their machinery and mechanisms of government could continue to function. And the way that Rome operated, they basically deputized a guy and said, okay, your job is to collect the taxes, and, you know, here's the things that you are to tax and the amounts that you're to tax for these various things. But you can do whatever you want. Anything over and above that that you want to extort from these people, that's between, you know, you and them, and you can, you can get whatever you want. And so tax collectors were very dishonest. And so the people hated them, And again, Zacchaeus, he wasn't just a tax collector, some random part of the cog machinery. He was the chief tax collector, which would have meant that for him, man, he would probably have gotten a cut from all the other tax collectors as well. He's the main guy, so he gets to pick and choose probably who other tax collectors in his system get to operate, and he he gets to tell them, hey, now you do whatever you want, but this is the cut that I want from from what you get to do. So for uh, being the chief tax collector, this would have been a huge sum of money, especially in Jericho. Jericho was a very, very, very prosperous city. Um, It was known as the City of Palms. And it was considered the fattest in Palestine. In other words, uh, it was the richest city in the region. They were renowned for uh, their dates and for the balsam wood, and they would export it. They would tr- it was traded worldwide. And so there was a lot of money to be had, and there was a lot of, op- of operations to tax. And so you can imagine the position of chief tax collector, this wasn't just handed out to anybody. Like, if you were going to be the chief tax collector, it's reasonable to assume that you had to be ruthless. You would have had to, to scrape and to, 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 to fight tooth and nail with people. You would have had to claw your way into that position, lie, cheat, steal. And so this makes Zacchaeus, the fact that he attained that position, we can only imagine the things that he did and how ruthless, in fact, that he had been to achieve this. And so the text makes a a point of telling us that he is that chief tax collector, and the text also tells us that he was very, very rich. But now what's he doing? He's looking for Jesus. And what we see and what we discover just through the, the, the transition of what happens when he sees Jesus and how he reacts when he comes face to face with Jesus we can make the reasonable assumption that Zacchaeus, like so many others before him and so many others after him, what happened? He got to the place where he got to the top of the mountain, where he achieved everything, where he acquired all of this wealth, and he realized it just doesn't satisfy, that it just doesn't give him the payoff that he thought that it would give to him. It left him empty. He just filled and filled and filled a leaking vessel a leaking cup of his life, and realized, man, this just doesn't satisfy. See, most of us have the illusion that if we were to acquire riches, we were to acquire wealth, that our lives would get better. You know, the, the lottery comes around, and, and it's, you know, however many billions of dollars. And we fantasize in our mind, like, you know, oh my gosh, what would I do if I won the lottery? And it's, it's fun to think about, and we have these thoughts like, 
you know, oh man, it would be so great. And we hear these stories about people who won the lottery and, and they ruined their lives and they just were miserable people and we think, well, they just didn't know how to do it. I could do it a lot better. If it were me, man, it would be amazing and I'd be happy and all of this stuff. That's simply because most of us aren't wealthy, right? So we have the luxury of thinking about it in those terms, but it's actually not true. It's interesting, 2002, a guy, I'm going to butcher his name, Dr. Daniel uh, Kahneman, I guess is how you pronounce it, Um, we'll just say Kahneman, but anyway, Daniel Kahneman, he actually, he he was a doctor at Princeton University, He, he authored a study. And he won the Nobel Peace Prize for it. And you're going to laugh for why he won it, because my grandmother could have told you this. But, but basically, he applied the principles of psychology to economics and came to the conclusion, this groundbreaking discovery, that money doesn't buy happiness. Won the Nobel Peace Prize for that. I'm like, my grandmother could have run that, won that you know, 70 years ago. But no, not only did his study determine that money can't buy you happiness... The study found that wealth typically makes people less happy. Typically makes people less happy. One of the key findings was that the more wealth you have, the more intense negative emotions you actually feel. And there's a lot of testimonies, a lot of quotes from famous rich people that back this up. Andrew Carnegie, uh, he, he made the quote that millionaires seldom smile in his observation. Henry Ford, he said... I was happier when I was a mechanic than I, than I was after I, you know, came up with, you know, all of the, not just inventing the automobile, which he, technically he didn't, but he came up with this, this mass production system. That was really his real genius and, and made him just, an, you know, an ultra-millionaire, but it brought him no happiness. In fact, he said he was more happy when he was a mechanic. Another Ford, Harrison Ford, famously said, you've heard me quote this, you know, he's in an interview and he says, you always want what you ain't got. And they're like, <laughs> Harrison Ford, actor, millionaire, movie star, what ain't you got? Peace. That was his answer. Got no peace, right? A uh, guy by the name of G- uh, Paul J. Brinkerhoff, he wrote a book, While, Why Millionaires Seldom Smile. Here's what he said. He said, few things promise so much and deliver so little as money. Even King Solomon, wise beyond human compare, struggled with the deceitfulness of wealth. Paul told the, the apostle Timothy, or the, his disciple Timothy, he said, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. He said, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. We misquote that sometimes and say money is the root of all kinds of evil, but it's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. Jesus, as always, sums it up best. He says, what do, you, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world and you lose your soul? He says, is anything worth more than your soul? And really, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about money. The Bible has almost 2,400 verses that talk about money. It's mentioned more than heaven. It's mentioned more than hell. Money is mentioned two times more than faith in the Bible. Money is mentioned five times more than prayer in the Bible. 15% of the words that Jesus spoke, or at least the ones that are recorded for us, are about money, including half of all the parables that he told, all about money. Why all this teaching on money? Because it makes a terrible God. That's why. Money makes a horrible God. And Zacchaeus, he learned this the hard way. Now, I'll hit the pause button right there, and let me just ask you the question, have you learned this yet? 
Have you learned that money doesn't bring you happiness? That the pursuit of money is, is, is not all that it's cracked up to be? Have, have you learned that? As you're taking a walk with, and maybe I would encourage you this week, maybe take a walk with the question, ask yourself, am I guilty of being somebody who's really blindly ambitious? Because really, that's what Zacchaeus was for so many years. He was blindly ambitious, just willing to, to, to do whatever it took to, 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 attain, to, to, to attain, to acquire, to amass to himself the things that he thought were going to satisfy him. Ha, have you been living that way? Would your friends and your family describe you as somebody who's really blindly ambitious? I'll never forget, years and years ago, I was in a counseling situation. A dad asked me to counsel with he and his son. His son was angry with him. They were estranged. And his father was exasperated. And, and at one point in, in their you know, meeting with me, he said to the son, he, he's like, I've killed myself to give you everything that I never had. And his son responded with a zinger that stung me when I heard it. He basically said, well, there's one thing you did have growing up that you didn't give me, a father. I was like, whoa. What was his big beef? His dad was more consumed with getting his stuff everything than he was actually being with his son. And, and so it, just this blind ambition. And so that's, this is where Zacchaeus is at. He's lived this way. And so now what's he want to do? He wants to see who Jesus is. But he's blinded as we read that story by something else. Notice he's blinded by the crowd, right? Now, I'm going to take some liberties with the text here. Um, but contextually, we see that Zacchaeus' problem is logistical, right? He's got a logistical problem. There's a crush of people, lots of people all around, and he's a short little guy. He can't see over, you know, the heads of the people that are there. Sometimes you and I, we can encounter logistical issues when it comes to seeing Jesus, right? Zacchaeus says, I'm too short to see, but man, there's always something that's in between you and Jesus. There's always going to be something that keeps you from seeing the Lord. It could be your schedule that's in between you and Jesus. It could be inconvenience that's in be just, you know, general circumstance that keeps you in between you and the Lord, right? It, it can be you're coming into church and we don't have a cop today and, you know, it's, the traffic is backed up all the way to Paba and you're thinking, you know, good grief, forget this, let's go to brunch, you know, kind of thing. You know, and, and it could be the parking, it could be the, you know, whatever, the crush of, of, of people, whatever it happens to be, <coughs> there's always something that can come in between you and the Lord. Russ, who was doing announcements today. He and his wife, Sarah, they just had their first, their first child a couple of months ago, and, uh, and baby Malia there, and, and, she, and, you know, they were telling me that uh, Malia had a gift, you know, for, for the first weeks of her, of her life there, first couple of months of her life. Uh, she, she'd sleep okay at some times, but inevitably, Saturday night, you know, she, she'd have a Mondon patrol, you know, when, for when it came to Sunday morning. I can identify with that. Brenda and I have been watching our grandkids this weekend, and uh, the, the, the middle one decided to throw up all Friday night. So we got about an hour and a half of sleep. You know, I came in here last night just, you know, jonesing for some sleep. You know, a lot of you were like, you know, I call that Tuesday, you know. Um, yeah, I'm just like, I'm too old for this. I paid my dues. I did that before, you know. <laughs> but there's always something that's, that wants to get between you and Jesus. That's the point, right? And, and so, so it can be a logistical thing. Here's another thing. It could be a behavioral thing. 
that, you know, and I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you have had some sort of a conflict with somebody and, and there's the actual conscious thought that goes, well, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to encounter this person, right? And Satan's the master at that, that he can use people understanding that there's going to be some sort of behavioral conflict that could get that person in between you and Jesus, right? And, and you know, there could, I mean, there's, and there, it runs the gamut of, of things that it could be. I mean, this whole, you know, heartbreaking thing that we see going on with the Catholic Church. And I can't tell you how many different forums I've been on where you see the comments and people basically, they haven't just left the church, they've left God over it. Where, where they see the actions of, of people that have done these horrible things and they say, you know, that's God. And here's what I would say. Listen, don't confuse the crowd with the Christ. Don't confuse the crowd with the Christ. Brenda's dad, he, had a, he went out to, to lunch with this guy. And uh, the guy, you know, bought him lunch. It was the last thing he spent his money on where dad was concerned. He hit him up with, you know, this, this business plea where, you know, hey, do you want to invest some money kind of deal. Swindled her dad and a bunch of other people and, and sadly couched it in, you know, all he, this, this good upstanding Christian guy, air quotes, Christian guy that he was. He was embezzling and stealing money from people. And, and so, and the tragedy was Brenda's dad said, that's it. I'm not going back to the church. You know, he, he confused the crowd with the Christ. He said, you know, the, just forget it. I can't, I, I don't see Jesus in that, so I'm just not going to go to church. For years, would not go to church because he confused the crowd or couldn't see past the crowd to the Christ, right? And so, so there are things that can blind us uh, to Jesus, these things that happen. There's always going to be people who are going to get in between you and Jesus. Don't let them. So notice here what Zacchaeus does there, verses 3 and 4. He sought to see who Jesus was. He couldn't because of the crowd. He's a short guy. So what's he do? He, he says, oh, forget it. I'm going to brunch. No, he ran ahead. He climbed up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus. He's like, Where? well, let's see. He's going that way. I'm going to run ahead, and I'm going to climb up in a tree so, so, so I can see Jesus. And you'll remember last week, we were looking at, you know, actually a couple of weeks ago, we were... We were looking at, um, you know, the, the dynamic of people bringing their children to Jesus. And, uh, and some of, you know, his disciples were, were hindering them, saying, you know, don't bring those kids here. He's busy. He's a busy man. He's got people to see places to go. He ain't got time for your kid. And, and Jesus rebuked him, and he's like, bring those kids here. You bring those kids to me. And he goes on, and he makes a connection, and he says, listen, you have to become like one of these kids if you want to see the kingdom of God. You've got to become like a little child. Well, Zacchaeus, in a sense, he becomes like a little child. Like, you know, you don't see a lot of grown men running up and climbing trees, you know. But he doesn't care. He's like, that's the way for me to see Jesus. So he runs and he climbs this tree. Listen, where there's a will, there's a way. And Zacchaeus, he's a guy who has spent his whole life saying, I want to achieve this. I want to acquire this. I want to get this. And clearly becoming the chief tax collector, he's, he's a guy of, uh, you know, shrewd man. So he, he employs the same things to this objective. He's like, man, I, I want to I get to where Jesus is. And so he gets up in this tree but it, and becomes like a child to do it and sees Jesus. But more importantly, I want you to take note that Jesus saw him. Look at there in verse 5. It says, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he saw him and he said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down for today I must stay at 
your house. I want you to notice here that Jesus calls him by his name. Jesus calls him by his name, has such power, such incredible impact on this guy's life. One of the commentators makes the observation, he says, you know, this may well be one of the only times in Zacchaeus' life, except for maybe his mom, that someone has called him by his name in a loving, affectionate way, right? Somebody calls you by your name. I remember, a lot of you guys know, my, my son Scotty was an actor in Hollywood for years, and he, uh, he worked in a movie with, with Julia Roberts, played her son uh, in, in the movie Aaron Brockovich. And, um, and so through the course of that, you know, they, we had some, some, you know, interactions certainly on the set, but we had some interactions off the set. Um, Brenda and, and Scotty and the girls had gone down to a baby shower that uh, her sister was, was having. And everybody was invited, and of course Julia was there. And so they're at this baby shower, and all of a sudden Julia says, Hey, Scotty, I was cleaning out my closet the other day, and I, and I heard on my television a familiar voice, and I thought... That's Scotty. I know that voice. And Scotty had been on, on, you know, some TV program or something. And Brenda's retelling this story to me. And you know those times, those experiences where you just kind of go, that's, that's just weird. You know, here's Julia Roberts. She knows my son's name. And a few months later, she wins the Academy Award for her performance in that movie. And as she's thanking everybody, she thanks Scotty by name. And, and we're all watching you. We all cheer. Yeah, you know, there it is, Scotty. She just said your name. And, and it's cool and all, but I want you to think how much that pales in comparison to what we're reading here. The God of the universe knows this guy's name. Listen, the God of the universe knows your name. He knows every hair on your head. You're precious to him. I think of that Tommy Walker song. I have a maker. He formed my heart. Before even time began, my life was in his hands. He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls, and he hears me when I call. And so Zacchaeus, man, he makes haste. In verse 6 and 7, we see he comes down. He receives Jesus joyfully. But when, you know, these religious leaders see it, they scoff, right? And, and, and they, they all complain. They're saying, you know, that Jesus, he's gone into to be a guest of the sinner, right? Now, now that phrase made haste there in verse 6, it means an urgent movement driven by an earnest desire. This is what's happening in Zacchaeus' heart. He makes this urgent movement, movement. it's driven by this earnest desire. I want you to take note that it's, it's not motivated by religion, this decision that he makes to, to, to welcome Jesus into his home. It's not driven by a sense of guilt. It's not driven by a burden of responsibility. What's it driven by? It's driven by the very thing that these religious leaders are scoffing and and ridiculing Jesus for. It's driven by the fact that Jesus is willing to go into his house and be his guest. Let me tell you today, Jesus wants to come into your house. He He wants to be a guest in your home today. And Zacchaeus, man, it's not because he'd earned, it. he'd earned this. He hadn't earned this. He was a scoundrel. He's a horrible man. Done horrible things. And up until this point, like, he, he was still stuck on stupid. Yeah, he's seeking Jesus, but, I mean, there, there, is, it, there has not been some huge change in this man's life. 
And in your life, you might think, you know, there's no reason that Jesus should want to come into my house. Like, like I mean, does, you said he, in the prayer that he knows everything about me. Well, gee whiz, if he knew everything about me, he'd never want to come into my house. He wants to come into your house. He desperately wants to have this kind of relationship with you. There's two critical takeaways from this that I, I don't want you to miss. Number one is just that. Don't you doubt for a second God's love for you. Don't you doubt for a second that God loves you so incredibly, loves you immensely. He loves you today. He loves you tomorrow. He will love you next week. He will love you next year. He loves you on your best day. He loves you on your worst day. God loves you. Paul says in his epistle to the Romans, there's nothing that can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing, he goes on to say, in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that's revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. The second critical takeaway that I want you to take from this is that because that's how God has loved us, listen to me, this is how God wants you to love other people. He wants you to have the same <clears throat> heart of love for other people. One of the values that we have here as a church is missional living. And we articulate that value this way. We say that we live out a genuine faith and we intentionally share that faith with other people. Let me ask you, are you doing that? Are you living like that? Why do we do that? Because that's how God has loved us. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Last week we had a dad. He was here, had one small baby in his arms, had another toddler in his hand, and the toddler got away from him. And so the dad comes to our children's ministry staff and says, I've lost my daughter. And so now everybody is like mobilized, you know. We got two guys that immediately run over into the parking lot in the Baptist church next door. They're like, did she get over here? Did she, she go over the, 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 the embankment and go down there? And I was joking with them later, and I'm like, and now you got their security all freaking out. We got two guys just ran over here. They're running through our parking lot, you know. People running down, making sure she's not going in the street. People just mo- running everywhere. Tammy Pena, our children's ministry director, she goes, where would I go if I was a kid? She goes into the gallery in the, uh, in the foyer there, right to the donuts. There's the little girl, you know, went right for the donuts. Found your daughter, got you covered. I want you to think about that dad's heart when his daughter was gone. You've been there, right? Kid gets away from you, you're looking everywhere. Desperation, like find my baby, you know. She's lost. This is the heart of God. That his heart for the lost. We see people... And we get irritated with them, right? We get, we get irritated with people. We're like, good grief, I can't believe what you're doing. And we lose sight of the fact the Bible says is that there are people that have been taken captive by Satan to do his will. And so while the things that they do might outrage us in our Christian sensibilities, we need to understand that they have been taken captive by Satan to do his will. And so we have to have this heart for the lost. We have to, to see people as God sees them. Because the Bible says that God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. 
And in order to accomplish that, listen, God not only sent His Son as a missionary to give His life as a ransom for many, but listen, He's passed the baton on to you and me that we have to be willing to go and to reach the lost. And we say, yeah, but that's, that's so unpleasant. Yeah, but it's so dirty. I like what Greg Laurie said. He said, look, the last time I checked, you actually have to go into the field to reap a harvest. See, we have to be willing to do this. I'm not talking about compromising who we are. I'm talking about a willingness to reach the people. Listen, God's placed every last one of you in a circle of influence and wants you to reach people. And I'm not saying you have to be the God squad and go hit people over, your head, over their heads with your Bibles. No, the, the, the issue is, is it, we just have to reach them. I like what Tim Keller said. He said, God does not merely send the church in mission. God already is in mission, and the church must join him. This also means that the church does not simply have a missions department. It should wholly exist to be a mission. Ed Stetzer said something similar. He said, missional living is rooted in the triune sending God. The fact that God is a sender is connected with the very existence of the church. And so that's what you and I are called to. We're called to missional living, and it's not, it's not incidental. It's not optional, right? In other words, listen, you and I cannot participate in Christ without participating in His mission to the world. And missional living doesn't just happen by chance. It happens by intention. And I want you to take an inventory of your life. Take a walk with it this week, please. Take a walk with it this week. Ask the Lord. Um, how do I live out my life? Or is, is my whole circle of, of everything that I do, is it all contained within the Christian bubble? That I, that I only hang out with Christian people, that I only go to Christian events, that I only, yes, we are called to come out from among them and be separate. Yes, we are called to not neglect the gathering together of the saints. We are called to do this. Why? Because we're to grow up and then we're to go out, go forth as those that have been equipped to live out our faith in a lost and a dying world. And and to go out and to reach people with the love of Christ. Now I want you to consider, Jesus was called a glutton, he was called a drunkard, he was called a friend of tax collectors, and he was called a friend of sinners. Now we know that Jesus was not guilty of gluttony. He wasn't getting drunk. These are sins. Jesus never sinned. What was it? It was guilt by association. He was willing to go into these places. He himself never compromised, but yet he actually went in there, right? See, because Jesus never isolated himself. He infiltrated. This is what Jesus did. This is what we are called to do. We're not called to isolate. We're called to infiltrate, okay? And I want you to understand culture is the context in which we execute missional living. Culture out there is the context in which we execute missional living. In other words, missional living doesn't happen inside the Christian bubble. It happens outside the Christian bubble, right? And engaging in culture is a key component to living as a missional Christian. Now, when I talk about engaging culture, listen, I'm talking about living in relationship with the people in your circles of influence, living in relationship with the people in your community. Understand, 
when I talk about engaging culture, it's often referred to as contextualization. Okay, contextualization, that, that basically what you're doing is you're putting the gospel in context and you're utilizing the means that are at your disposal to do that. Here's how Paul articulated that. He said, I've become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake that I may be a partaker of it with you. In other words, the idea of contextualization is simply this, that we are to show people how the gospel is relevant to their actual lives, okay? You are to show people how the gospel is relevant to the life that they're living. Now, let me say a couple things about that. First first thing is that it stands to reason if you're going to show somebody how the gospel is relevant to their life, you have to know a little bit about them, right? Jesus knew this man's name. Let me ask you a question. Do you know your neighbor's name? Right? That's kind of ouch, right? You, you think, gosh, now I'm embarrassed. I've lived here for years, and I don't know that guy's name. I wave hi to him every once in a while, but now to go up to him and say, man, I don't remember your name. Listen, we should know a little bit about the person, you know, who it is. And then we have to show them how the gospel is relevant to the life that they're living. No, notice I didn't say we, that we don't show them how to make. We have to figure out how to make the gospel relevant to their life. No, we show them how it's relevant. The gospel is relevant to, to everybody in the world. Let me give you an example. Um, right now, one of the biggest things that's going on socially is the Me Too movement, right? Hashtag Me Too. It's like all, you know, there's this big, you know, movement that's going on. And the, the whole idea is talking about sexual abuse. And, and that there are a lot of people who have been abused. And lots of women coming forward saying, me too, I have been too. And statistically, it's overwhelming. I think it's like one in four, one in five women has been sexually assaulted or had some sort of, of a sexual, you know, um, assault of some, of some sort, some kind. And, and now, arguably, the issue's been weaponized by feminists. I won't argue that. But I will say that we can't gloss over it and say that it doesn't happen. We live in an age when there's many victims of sexual assault, both men and women and children. This is a world that we live in. Statistically speaking, a good number of you here in this room have experienced that, have lived through that. (coughs) And so maybe you have somebody in your circle of influence who fits this category. How is the gospel relevant to that person? How do you contextualize the gospel for them in their situation? Here's how. The gospel message is that Jesus Christ came in the flesh and he was himself assaulted, he was himself abused, he was himself beaten, and he was ultimately murdered. And Hebrews 4.15 tells us this, that Jesus understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings that we do, yet he was without sin. And the good news for those that are in your circle of influence who have been wounded in this way is that we worship a God who not only himself identifies not just with the specific suffering, but he he identifies with their suffering, right? He identifies with that. Not only does he identify with them, but the Bible says that God covers their shame. The Bible says that God cleanses their sin. The Bible says that God makes them clean and righteous in his sight. The Bible says that God gives them a new name and that he gives them a new identity. 
No longer are they defined by what their abusers did to them, but they can be identified by what Jesus did for them on the cross. See, that's contextualization. No other religion, no other philosophy offers a God like that. And listen, he is revealed through you. Just living out your life, letting your light so shine before men and women that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Making the conscious choice, like Jesus here, to live missionally. Zacchaeus, I got to come to your house, right? And notice Zacchaeus' response. I want you to see it. Zacchaeus stands up. He says, look, Lord, and he's speaking to the Lord. Big contrast from the guy that we read about, praying, you know, standing up, praying for everyone to see, look how awesome I am. He stands up and he just says, directs it directly to Jesus. He says, look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, that's a legal term, and basically the idea is that he extorted people and said, you owe this much taxes when they really didn't. And so if he says, if I've taken, it's really not if then, maybe I have, maybe I haven't. It's if then and I have. I've taken things from people. He says, I restore it fourfold. What Zacchaeus demonstrates here, guys, is the fruit of repentance. The fruit of repentance. I will give an invitation on a regular basis. I'll give one today as we're closing in prayer. For people to receive Christ as the Lord and Savior. And I, and I invite people, hey, raise your hand, pray, surrender your life to the Lord. And, and, I, and I encourage you to do that. But listen, that doesn't make you saved. What makes you saved is that you exercise true repentance. That, that what happens is you go, yes, I surrender my life to the Lord, I believe, which, which obviously Zacchaeus has done here. Jesus says salvation has come to this house because he's also a son of Abraham. What's he done? He says, Lord, I repent. I receive, I repent. It's not about coming forward. It's about going forward. It's about saying, okay, I, I'm going to surrender my life. He made haste to see who Jesus was. He made haste to welcome Jesus into his home, and now he makes haste to happily repents of his former deeds, and he makes restitution. And he takes this action, get this, this is the key, not proactively to earn all, all this stuff. He does it in response to the love that Jesus has extended to him. This is how he responds. Romans 2.4 tells us that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And so we'll close right here, and I want to invite you right now today as we close in prayer, as we partake of communion, I want to, I want to invite you to two things. Number one, if you're here today like Zacchaeus, you need to see Jesus, and, and, and you just go, man, I just, I just need, I need Jesus in my home. I need Jesus in my life. I need Jesus to restore me. As we close in prayer, I'll give you the invitation to do that. But you know, the, the larger number of us here today, we really got to take a walk with this idea of living our lives in such a way that loves the lost, that is willing to go out and engage a lost world. Just imagine what would happen if we all went home into our neighborhoods, into our communities, into our workplace. Not going to, to beat people over the head. No, what we do, the Bible says, just be ready to give, a, give an account of the hope that you have. Just sharing your testimony with somebody. How hard is it just to strike up a friendship with somebody? Not being an Amway salesman. Not, not hey, I got to close the deal. I'm going to cozy all up to you so that so I can, you know, sell you Jesus. 
No, actually loving somebody. How hard is it to make a friend and just share your faith with them just, just through the, in the context of relationship? That's what we're talking about here. Somebody did that for you. 